Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Well, you heard it mentioned, um, I think, last Sunday, and uh, today we just wanted to emphasize it a little bit more. Maybe you picked up one on your way in. And we are talking about the parenting conference that is coming up here at East Haven on April the 11th. Our good friend Gary Mays will be joining us that Sunday. And we've, we did a parenting conference in the past, and we did it on a Saturday morning. And we found that that was just not the best time for our people to attend a parenting conference. Even though we had a, a group of people show up and it was really good, we recognized we needed to shift things and pivot things a little bit. And so we are having an all-day time of conference on Sunday, April the 11th. And so Gary will be joining us in the morning service. We'll have a full morning service, worship time, everything. But Gary will be leading us that morning and then you can go home, grab a bite to eat, go get something to eat, and then come back at 3 p.m. for session two here at the church. And we'll have some breakout sessions. And we have seven breakout sessions that you can choose from. And let me just go over some of these or go over these. The first one, how, do you talk to your chi- how to talk to your child about becoming a Christian. Uh, Michelle Mayfield will be leading that. Uh, Sonia Foster will be leading from warrior to warrior, how to help your child with anxiety. Uh, Craig Todd, our student pastor, will be leading, uh, there's a little bit of a change, uh, Generation, G- Generation Z or Gen Z, a field guide to the American teenager. That's what we're calling that one. Uh, also, uh, Celeste Williamson will be leading Doing Life with Your Adult Child. Dr. Bill Miller, uh, he has spoken here before. He'll be joining us to talk about grandparenting, leading from the second chair. How do you, how, what's your role as a grandparent in the life of your grandchildren? I'll be doing one on biblical worldview, uh, equipping your child to face a culture in crisis. And then Gary will be leading a breakout session as well. Uh, right now, that's to be determined, but right now, uh, Gary is leaning toward uh, how to raise your child up as a hero. And then we'll meet again together in here in the worship center at 5 p.m. for the third session. And so we'll have three sessions that day, one breakout session. I know some of you say, I would like to go to multiple breakout sessions. We will have all of the information from each breakout session available that day. So you can go through and you can pick up all the information and get all that information. I know right now you are saying, what is this wonderful opportunity going to cost me? It's absolutely free. All right. So we're doing it completely and totally free. Uh, And so invite some friends, invite some neighbors. And you may say, who is this for? It is for, if you are a parent, it's for you. If you say, wait a minute, does that mean if, if I'm having a difficulty in parenting? Sure, it's for you. What about if I'm doing parenting, I think I'm doing pretty well? Yes, this will take you to the next step. What if I'm thinking about having kids? Uh, we're, we're married, but we don't have kids yet. Yes, it's for you. How about if I'm a grandparent? Yes, it's for you. How about if I have an adult child? Yes, 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 yes. If you have anything to do with kids, anything to do with other people, anything to do with anybody at any time, at any place, anywhere, this is for you, okay? And if not, it's for somebody that you know, so invite them and bring them. All right, so that is Sunday, April the 11th. Hope you'll put that on your calendars. More information will be coming. We do ask that you register 
Even though it's free, we do ask that you register in order for us to know if you need childcare. So that's important. We'll provide childcare uh, that day for those different sessions. So today we are starting a new series, a three-week series, and it is on idolatry. And I know the first thing that we think of when we think of idolatry is maybe what we have there is an image, the golden calf there at Sinai. Maybe you think of some other things. Maybe you think of some primitive people with their idols. But the interesting thing is you find throughout the Bible that there is no other sin that God's people commit that brings as serious of a consequence as idolatry. Again and again and again, God condemns idolatry. God talks about how serious he takes idolatry. And you find that in many cases, a lot of the captivities that the people of God experienced were due to idolatry. And then you find from the Old Testament, as it shifts to the New Testament, the concept of idolatry becomes much more fluid. And you start having things included as idolatry or included as idols that in the Old Testament, maybe you wouldn't think about it being an idol. And so this morning, I want us to talk about idolatry. It's super important. I mean, if you just look at the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments deal with some type or some connection to idolatry. This is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That's how God leads out the Ten Commandments. Then he follows with, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And so God makes it clear. He leads out with two statements pointing toward he being the exclusive, the exclusive one to whom we direct our worship. But not only that, saying, no, am I the exclusive one? You don't even include anything, any created thing, and make it on the same level as me. You don't even put it close to me. And so I want us to look in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, that's where we're going to be today for just a few moments. And it's important to understand that when Jeremiah is prophesying here, Jeremiah is prophesying to the people of Judah, he's prophesying to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, where idolatry was running wild, and Jeremiah addresses them. And Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, if you don't turn from your idolatry, and because you're steeped in idolatry, God is going to send some invaders to carry you off. Now, there are a few hundred years from being delivered out of Egypt, but we find that idols have been a perennial problem. They've been coming up again and again and again in the lives of the people of God. And so God sends the prophet Jeremiah to confront this idolatry, but the people don't listen. In fact, if you read on through Jeremiah, you find that Jeremiah's prophecies got him run out of town. People didn't want to hear it. People loved their idols too much. People didn't think it was a problem. And so we find that Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2 prophesies, starting in verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me? that they went far from me and went after worthlessness 
and became worthless. The first thing that we find that Jeremiah shows us about idolatry is that we will resemble what we worship. We will resemble what we worship. Whatever it is that we worship, whatever that focus is, that will transform us into its likeness. Notice what he says. What wrong did your fathers find in me? Now he's talking, he's, he's backing up and he's going back to the Exodus wanderings. He's backing up to the people that were first brought into the land. And he's saying, what wrong did they find in me? Now that's a rhetorical question. There is no wrong with God. There's no shadow of turning with him, according to the book of James. So he, he addresses them and says, what did I do wrong that you turned from me? And then notice what he says that they did. They went after worthlessness and became worthless. They became like that which they pursued. They became like that which they worshipped. They worshipped worthless idols and in doing so became worthless themselves. What does it mean whenever we make an idol? Well, look at, look at Habakkuk chapter 2. We went through Habakkuk last year during the pandemic. Habakkuk 2.18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. Habakkuk says, what, what purpose is it? What meaning does an idol have to give? And the implication is none. Because you make it, and then you worship it. You worship the work of your hands. It's as though the creator creates creation, and then creation creates a replacement creator. We go backwards and work our way backwards, making ourselves the creator, making ourselves the sole arbitrator of truth, making ourselves the one to whom we look at the one that we're going to worship and say, you have to line up with us instead of lining up as, create, as created beings with our creator we want the creator to serve us. We want the creator to be like us. We want the creator to meet our standards. And when we lessen God like that and we lift something else up, then what we end up doing is harming ourselves because we end up being transformed into that image. We, tra we are transformed into whatever image we're worshiping. Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 2 has this little hint that it goes beyond wood and metal and stone. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? There's this little hint of it there. The little hint of what we find fleshed out more in the New Testament. Because it's easy to say, I don't have an idol in my house. I don't have an idol somewhere on my property. I don't have some sort of statue that I'm burning incense to. 
I don't, I don't have some sort of image that I'm making sacrifices to. No, 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 no. That's, that's those primitive people back then. That's primitive people in other places in the world. That's not, that's not me. But Ezekiel records those words of God that says they've set up idols in their heart. Meaning it's, it's not just wood. It's not just stone. It's not just metal. It's something that can be in our hearts, not an actual physical thing, but something we can set up and make it our object of worship. Psalm 115, verse 8, psalmist writes, those who make them, that is idols, become like them. So do all who trust in them. There's the truth. There it is. We resemble what we worship. Those who make them become like them. So we must be careful whenever we are looking through our lives to make sure we don't have idols because we will be transformed into that image. That's one way, there are multiple avenues, but one way that you can begin to start identifying idols in your own life. You ask yourself the question, what do I find shaping me the most? What do I find shaping my life the most? What do I worship most regularly where am i spending most of my time not just my time working or hobbies or anything like that where am i spending most of my thought life what am i thinking on the most where am i investing my 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 thoughts where are my emotions invested i remember i think it was tim keller that made a statement one time uh pastor tim keller he said that uh, one thing that you can do is you can, uh, if you pull up your desires, sometimes clinging to the roots, you'll find your idols. Well, that's, a good, that's a good statement. Sometimes idols are clinging to the roots of our desires. So we will resemble what we worship. But not only that, that idolatry never remains isolated. That's the frightening thing about idolatry. It's viral. It spreads. Look at verse 6. They, that's talking about those who went before the previous generations, God says they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt? They didn't ask. They didn't say, who's the one true God who brought us up? No, he says, uh, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits and a land of drought and deep darkness and a land that none passes through where no man dwells. Did they ask who led them through the wilderness? He says, no, they didn't do it. And then he says, and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land, and look at this phrase, and made my heritage an abomination. He's telling them, you made my heritage an abomination. What I gave to you, you made it into an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. That is the leaders, not literal shepherds the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit therefore I still contend with you declares the Lord and with your children's children I will contend notice the the progression the people who came into the land did not remember God did not acknowledge God we find they did acknowledge God but what they did is they tried to pair God up with the gods of the land so they didn't regard God as being the one and only true God of worship. And then you have the next step where the priests, who should be leading the people, they're not leading God the right way. you got the shepherds who are supposed to be 
kind of shepherding the people and pastoring the people and leading the people, they're not leading and serving God the right way. The prophets begin to speak things that are against the word of God. And then he goes on down and he says, and I will contend with you and with your children's children, I will contend. Now, is there an element in there of like a generational curse? Certainly. But also, is there an element in there of it affecting generation after generation after generation? One generation's idolatry spreads. You can't keep idolatry isolated. It keeps spreading. It keeps wanting more and more and more and more because it's an object of worship. And it demands more and more and more and more of us. And just as we find in Ezekiel, we can set up those things in our heart. You look at the Old Testament, it's literal physical idols. You look at the New Testament and you start finding other things put in the same category. Greed. The Bible says greed, which is idolatry. Sexual immorality gets woven into the idea of idolatry. We find that the Bible talks about those who serve their own bellies. It's not just talking about gluttony. It's talking about serving their own desires. Their own desires become king. Their own expectations and preferences and opinions, they become king. And we have to be careful because we can have idols that arise. You, you may have a title that is an idol. I've, I've talked to people before and they're like, I have the title of so-and-so. I'm like, okay, well, that's great. What does that mean? Well, it's my title. Well, what do you do? Well, it's my title, right? I've had people come to me and say, well, I'm a leader. I remember what one of my mentors used to tell me. He says, if you call yourself a leader, look around. If nobody's following you, you're just taking a walk, right? You may have the title of leader, but if somebody's not following you, you're taking a walk. We have to be careful because in, in the last few months, we've heard a lot about political parties and how we can elevate political parties to the level of idolatry if we aren't careful. We can elevate, and I, I love America, I'm very patriotic, but we have to be careful not to elevate our national identity above our identity in Christ because that guy can be an idol. I'm a Christian first and foremost, you know, and I love America and I want America to, to survive and thrive. But regardless of what happens with America, I'm still a kingdom of God's, of God's kingdom, I'm, or I'm still a citizen of God's kingdom. And so I have to rely upon that. And you find other things, right? You can, local culture, our local culture can become an idol. It can govern how you live your life more than what God does. I've talked to people not only here, but other places I've lived. And they're like, well, you got to understand, I don't want to get too excited about the whole Jesus thing because that might hurt me so far as my clientele is concerned or so far as my customers are concerned, so far as my colleagues are concerned. I just don't want to get a weird standing. I want just enough Jesus to be socially acceptable, not too much Jesus to be thought of as a fanatic. And I'm like, what? And they're like, yeah, I mean, in different places, maybe it's different, but this is the way, this is the way I live here. You know what I call that? That's living more faithful to your zip code than to your Savior. You can do that because you can make your zip code an idol. And that's not what God calls us to do. And we've seen all sorts of other stuff. You know, we've all probably had times in our life where, where things became idols. I remember a young student that was at a summer camp. 
Um, I remember we, I, I taught on idolatry one night at a summer camp, and I remember this kid came forward, and during the final night, it was sort of a testimony time, he came forward and he says, I just want everybody to know that I was really struck earlier about an idol that's in my life, and that idol is football, and I'm not going to play football in the, in the fall because I am going to focus on following Christ. Now, his mama was in the audience, and his mama was banking on him playing football to get a scholarship. And she was not real happy with me. She took me aside after and she's like, I can't believe you preached on idolatry because my son gave up football. Like, well, praise God. What kind, of, what kind of idol do you have, ma'am? I mean, seriously. He, you know what he's doing now? He's in the ministry. That's what he's doing now. And I've talked to him recently and he said, you know what? That was a turning point for me. That was a turning point for me. Not to say anything wrong with football. That's not what I'm saying. But I remember what one of my professors said one time. He said, we spend more time equipping our kids to play ball in college than equipping them to face the worldviews that they'll be confronted with in college. And then we wonder why they back away from the faith. Because we've equipped them with the wrong thing. We've emphasized the wrong thing. So we, we can't let, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm not saying sports are bad. I'm saying if they become an idol, that's important. Sometimes you can just look around whenever travel ball season starts and just see who is not here on Sunday morning, and it just makes me go, hmm, okay, that was free. By the way, amen or oh me. All right. But you know what else? This is what I found. This is a scary one, and I've seen it manifested over the years. Church. I've seen church become an idol for some people. That's scary. That church becomes an idol? I've seen it. I, you know, I, I remember this one time, and some of you have probably heard the story. I remember one time at my previous church that I had hospital duty, and I went to the hospitals. And um, what some of you may not know is that sometimes if a church does something that people don't like, if, you're, if you just represent the church and you show up, then you're somehow responsible for all of it. And, and, that's, and that's what happened. And I showed up and it was, I went to visit because the person who was dying on her deathbed there in the hospital was a child and she was one, not a child, she was a child when she became a charter member of the church. She was a, she was a much older woman then and she's on her deathbed. And so she had been as a child, one of the charter members, her mother had actually helped give the land and, and start the church. The church started in her home. It was a house church. And so the, the two daughters of this woman who had been one of the charter members as a little bitty child were standing there at the hospital bed. And I came in and introduced myself and they started lighting into me. We don't like the way the church has changed. We don't like the new building. We don't like the fact they moved. We don't like this. And that was years and years ago. And the more they went on, they went on and went on and went on and went on. And finally, I just said, when's the last time you actually came to the church? And one of them looked at the ceiling and said, 30 years ago. I said, 30 years ago? She said, 30 years ago. I said, where have you been going since then? Well, we haven't. Because things changed. I said, well, things change in 30 years. I mean, that's, that's just the reality. And so I prayed with them and I left and they were still fussing up at me about why did the church change from 30 years earlier? Why is it so different? 
All the while, that's all they talked about the whole visit, while their mother laid in the bed dying. And the thing that was on their minds was the church is different than it was when she was a little girl. And I'm thinking, that's, where, that's a church that has become an idol. Not that, not that change is a bad thing. But they just, they, they couldn't get past that. Their preferences, their expectations, their traditions, that ruled over their, their whole walk with Christ. They didn't even go back to church in 30 years. Idolatry never remains isolated. It keeps spreading and it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. And one of the things that we have to be careful about is idolatry spreads. So that's one of the reasons that God keeps telling his people, you got to root out idolatry. Make sure you identify it, root it out. Don't start picking up those souvenirs from the other people. This is one of the things he warns them in Deuteronomy 12, 30. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? God says, I'm going to bring you in the land. You're going to wipe out the idolaters. I'm giving you the land. Don't sit around and go, I wonder how these people serve their gods. wonder if it's a good idea. Maybe we could get some good ideas from them. Maybe we should adopt their ideas. He said, don't do it. Don't even start asking about it. Just stay away from it. Notice 2 Kings chapter 17. If you want a good kind of step-by-step process of the fall of the people of God and kind of a, a very brief and concise commentary on it, just start at 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, and just read the entire chapter. It's not very long. Just read 2 Kings uh, 17. But toward the end of the chapter, 2 Kings 17, 41, we find this. So these nations feared the Lord, look at the next two words, and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So they feared the Lord and also served their carved images. They tried to take the best of what these pagan cultures offered and mesh it with the worship of the one true God. And it didn't work. It harmed their worship of the one true God. It did not enrich their worship of the idols. It didn't make the idol worship okay. Over the years, I've had people tell me. They'll say something like, well, we all have idols. Yeah, we do. And then they shrug. Well, I mean, you know, everybody's got a problem with idols. Yeah, well, everybody has a problem with original sin too. And you don't see us shrugging that off. Just the fact that idols are commonplace doesn't mean that they are less serious. In fact, it means it's more serious because it is so commonplace and we do have idols. So we will resemble what we worship and idolatry never remains isolated. So that's why we have to be very careful to not start going down that road because it spreads and it spreads. And just like that family, here's a mother on her deathbed and now all of her displeasure and unhappiness and everything is now made manifest in her children and probably in her children's children and on down and on down and on down. We have to be careful not to allow idolatry into our lives because it's always going to more, want more territory. It's always going to claim more land and it will wreck us. We resemble what we worship. Idolatry never remains isolated. And then finally, more than God is less than God. You start adding to, 
you're actually diminishing the worship of the one true God. Look at verse 10. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus, some translations say Katim, we'll talk about that in a second. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are not gods, even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. More than God is less than God. Here's God saying, check it out. Look around. Go all the way to the west. Go toward the islands out there in the Mediterranean. Go toward those nations that are far from me and check it out there. And then go over to the east, to Kedar, to these tribes over in the east, these people who worship false gods, and see if this ever happens. See if somebody who is devoted to idol worship says, you know what, I think I'm just going to give up my idols. Just for nothing, I just want to give up my idols. He said, have you ever seen that happen? And the implication is, no. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? Even though they're worthless things, do you see nations like, okay, listen, everybody, we're going we're gonna to either get away from our idols or we're going to change our, all our idols, we're going to change them for somebody else's idols. He said, no. That's the implication. And he says, but even what would never happen among pagan people, he says, among you, oh Judah, among you, that's exactly what you're doing, but you're even taking a next step. You are substituting false gods and you're exchanging my glory. The glory that I've given you, you're exchanging it for those things that aren't gods, for those things which do not profit. We find this type of exchange happening in the New Testament. Romans 1.23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I love how the psalmist kind of emphasizes the same point in Psalm 106 verse 20. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. A common livestock animal they've exchanged the glory of the one true king of the universe and the, instead they're worshiping a farm animal that's what the psalmist is saying you find in micah chapter 4 verse 5 for all the peoples walk each in the name of its god so they've they are worshiping less than the one true god and they're walking, they're living in that way. And notice what he says. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So we have to guard against idolatry. One of the most sobering passages in, for me in the Bible is starting with verse 12 that we're uh, looking at today in Jeremiah 2. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Look at verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've wanted more of God, and in doing so, they've rejected the sustenance, the peace, the joy, the life that God brings. He says they've committed two evils. First of all, they've forsaken me. 
They've walked away from me. Oh, they may have tried to cobble me in and piece me into that patchwork quilt of things that they worship along with other idols. But, but they've tried to reduce me to that level and, and they've tried to add to me, add to my glory and more of God is less than God. And now that's what they've been doing and they've forsaken me. And then notice what he says, and they've hewn for themselves broken cisterns. They've made for themselves those cisterns to catch water, to catch rainwater. But he says they're broken cisterns and the water just runs out of them. There's no sustenance there. You can also notice the difference in a cistern and a fountain. They've forsaken me. I'm offering fountains of living water. I am the one. I am fountains of living water. I am sustenance. I am life itself. They've forsaken me for a cistern. Not only a cistern that the water runs out of, but even if the cistern held water, you'd have to change that water out periodically because the water gets stagnant. There's no fountain in a cistern. It's just a catch basin, storage vessel. So God says they've hewn for themselves. They've made for themselves idols that cannot sustain. They've made for themselves idols that do not live themselves and therefore they can't make anybody else live. And so now you find that the people of God, this indictment that Jeremiah brings to them. Jonah chapter 2 verse 8 reiterates this very idea those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love why because you've abandoned the one you've abandoned the only one that can sustain us and give us life you can't read this i don't think if you've read a whole lot of bible very much of the bible without thinking about john's conversation or jesus conversation at the well in john chapter 4 Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, not only is God the fountain of living water, whenever you worship God alone, he implants that fountain of living water within you by his spirit. And so he grants you life Life that just doesn't come from the outside in, but life that he has placed in us, implanted within us, a new life in Christ. And we find our sustenance and we find our strength. We find our thirst met in him. The thirst that we have is a thirst that God has given us for water that only comes from him. And so the thirst that we have, the problem that we have, is that we have a thirst that we try to meet by all other methods. But the thirst we have is the thirst that he gave for the water that only he supplies. And so we find that Jesus saying, I'm that water. I'm the one. You don't have to serve empty, vain idols. I'm the one. I'm the one. I love the fact that when the world is made anew again, this idea doesn't end. You find in Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. That fountain of living water continues on, continues on. 
for all eternity. And we continue to drink. And we continue to receive that eternal life. And we continue to live in perfect communion and union with God himself, the one true God. There aren't any idols in heaven. And if there aren't any idols in heaven, then y'all, I want to be practicing for that right now. And I want to be practicing for a life with no idols by making sure that God removes as many of the ones in my life now that I may be tempted to follow. Do you have any idols? You probably do. But dethrone that idol. Put Christ in the right place. Maybe you need, for the very first time in your life, maybe you need to come to Christ and say, I, I have idols all stacked on that throne of my heart that truly should belong to Christ alone. Christ died on the cross, taking our sin, every one of our sins, even the sin of idolatry. No matter how small we may think that idol is, God heaped all of that. The, his wrath was satisfied on the cross by Jesus himself. And if we trust in him by faith, if we turn from our idols, if we turn from our sin and turn toward him and trust that he paid the price, then we can have eternal life and we can spend eternity with God. You have an idol? Allow God to dethrone it. You don't have an idol right now? Don't get one. Stay without it. Let Christ reign on the throne of your heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you right now thankful we're thankful that your word is so sharp and cuts so deep and does that spiritual surgery and reveals our motives and reveals our thoughts and reveals our emotions and that we can come before you, Lord God, come before your word and you begin to search our hearts and our minds through your word. I'm mindful of just the last few weeks as I've been preparing for for this series, the things that you've pointed out and things that, that at first glance I would say, that's not an idol, and you've shown me that it is. And I'm thankful for the things that you've removed and realigned in my own life through this so that I might better focus on worshiping you, the one true God. So, Father, I pray for anybody here who may be wrestling with any sort of idol in their heart and in their mind, any sort of idol in their life. And, God, I pray that you would help us to put it in its right place. It may be a good thing, but just because it's a good thing doesn't mean we worship it instead of you, God. God, it may be something that needs to be removed from our lives altogether. pray that you might give us discernment and wisdom with that. Maybe something that just needs to be put in its right place, in a, in a lesser place of honor than we have it now, because you are the only one who's deserving of our worship. Father, maybe somebody here today, maybe listening, maybe watching, and they may say, I need to come to Christ as the one and only Savior. And I need to lay aside everything else, every broken cistern I've been running to for water has proven to be just dry and stagnant and full of sand. And I want that living water that Christ offers. I pray today would be the day that they would say yes to Christ. But Father, in this time and in the days to come, 
pray that we would respond to you in a way that brings you the most glory, honor, and praise. And it's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.